Section 14 of Anton Chekhov and Other Essays. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Anton Chekhov and Other Essays by Lev Shestov. Translated by John Middleton Murray and Samuel Kotelyansky. Section 14. The Theory of Knowledge. Part 4 science and metaphysics etc in his autobiography spencer confesses that he had really never read kant he had had the critique of pure reason in his hands and had even read the beginning the transcendental ascetic but the beginning convinced him it was no use for him to read further once a man had made the unconvincing admission which kant had made by accepting the subjectivity of one form of perception of space and time he could not be taken seriously into account if he is consistent all his philosophy will be a system of absurdity and nonsense if he is inconsistent the less attention does he deserve spencer confidently asserts that once he could not accept kant's fundamental proposition he not only could not be a kantian any more but he found it useless even to become further acquainted with kant's philosophy that he did not become a kantian is nothing to grieve over there are kantians enough without him but that he did not acquaint himself with kant's principal works and above all with the whole school that rose out of kant may be sincerely regretted perhaps as a new man remote from continental traditions he would have made a curious discovery and would have convinced himself that it was not at all necessary to accept the proposition of the subjectivity of space and time in order to become a kantian and perhaps with the frankness and simplicity peculiar to him which is not afraid to be taken for naivete he would have told us that not a single kantian schopenhauer excepted not even kant himself had ever seriously accepted the fundamental propositions of the transcendental ascetic and therefore has never made from them any conclusions or deductions whatever on the contrary the transcendental ascetic was itself a deduction from another proposition that we have synthetic judgments a priori the original role of this the most original of all theories ever invented was to be a support and an explanation of the mathematical sciences it had never been an independent material content susceptible of analysis and investigation space and time are the eternal forms of our perception of the world to this according to the strict meaning of kant's teaching nothing can be added and nothing abated spencer not having read the book to the end imagined that kant would begin to make deductions and became nervous but if he had read the book to the end he would have been convinced that kant had not made any deductions and that the whole meaning of the critique of pure reason indeed is that from the propositions of the transcendental ascetic no deductions can be made it is now about a hundred and fifty years since the critique of pure reason appeared no philosophic work has been so much studied and criticized and yet where are the kantians who attempt to make deductions 
from the propositions as to the subjectivity of space and time schopenhauer is the only exception he indeed took the kantian idea seriously but it may be said without exaggeration that of all kantians the least like kant was schopenhauer the world is a veil of maya would kant really have agreed to such an interpretation of his transcendental ascetic or what would kant have said if he had heard that schopenhauer referring to the same ascetic in which he saw the greatest philosophic revelation had admitted the possibility of clairvoyance and magic probably spencer thought that kant would himself make all these deductions and therefore threw away the book which bound him to conclusions so absurd it is a pity that spencer was in such a hurry had he acquainted himself with kant he would have been convinced that the most absurd idea might serve a very useful purpose and that there is not the least necessity to make from an idea all the deductions to which it may lead a man is a free agent and he can deduce if he has a mind to if he has not he will not and there is no necessity to judge the character of a philosophic theory by its general postulates even schopenhauer did not exploit kant's theory to the full which if it had really divined the truth hitherto hidden from man would have not only put an end to metaphysical researches but also have given an impulse and a justification to perfectly new experiments from which the previous standpoint were quite mad and unimaginable for if space and time are forms of our human perception then they do indeed hide the ultimate truth from us while men knew nothing of this and simple-minded accepted the visible reality for the actual real they could not of course dream of true knowledge but from the moment when the truth was revealed to them through kant's penetration it is clear that their true task was to use every possible means to free themselves from the harness and to break away from it while consolidating all those judgments which kant calls synthetic judgments a priori for all eternity and the new the critical metaphysics which should take account of the stupid situation in which these had hitherto found themselves who saw in apodictic judgments eternal truths and a great task to set herself to get rid at all costs of apodictic judgments knowing them for false in other words kant's task should not have been to minimize the destructive effect of hume's scepticism but to find a still more deadly explosive to destroy even those limits which hume was obliged to preserve it is surely evident that truth lies beyond synthetic judgments a priori and that it cannot at all resemble an a priori judgment and in fact cannot be like a judgment of any kind and it must be sought by methods quite different from those by which it has been sought hitherto to some extent kant attempted to describe how he represented to himself the meaning hidden beneath the words space and time are subjective forms of perception he even gave an object lesson saying that perhaps there are beings who perceive the world otherwise than under the forms of space and time 
which means that for such beings there is no change all that we perceive by a succession of changes they perceive at once to them julius caesar is still alive though he is dead to them the twenty-fifth century a d which none of us will live to see and the twenty-fifth century b c which we reconstruct with some difficulty from the fragmentary traces of the past which have accidentally been preserved to us the remote north pole and even the stars which we cannot see through the telescope all are as accessible to them as to us the events which are taking place before our eyes nevertheless kant in spite of all temptation to acquire the knowledge to which such beings have access notwithstanding his profound conviction of the truth of his discovery did nothing to dispel the charm of forms of perception and categories of the reason or to tear the blinkers from his eyes and see all the depth of the mysterious reality hitherto hidden from us he does not even give a little circumstantial explanation why he considered such a task impracticable and he confines himself to the dogmatic assertion that man cannot conceive a reality beyond space and time why it is a question of immense importance compared with it all the problems of the critique of pure reason are secondary how is mathematics possible how are natural sciences possible these are not even questions at all compared to the question whether it is possible to free ourselves from conventional human knowledge in order to attain the ultimate all-embracing truth herein the kantians display an even greater indifference than kant himself they are even proud of their indifference they plume themselves upon it as a high virtue they assert that truth is not beyond synthetic judgments a priori but indeed in them and that it is not the creator who put blinkers upon us but we ourselves devised them and that any attempt to remove them and look open-eyed upon the world is evidence of perversity if the old serpent appeared nowadays to seduce the modern adam he would retire discomfited even eve herself would be no use to him the twentieth century eve studies in a university and has quite sufficiently blunted her natural curiosity she can talk excellently well of the teleological point of view and is quite as proof as man against temptation i do not share kant's confidence that space and time are forms of our perception nor do i see a revelation in it but if i had once accepted his apocalyptic assertion and could think that there was some truth in it i would not depart from it to positive science it is a pity that spencer did not read the critique of pure reason to the end he would have convinced himself of an important truth that a philosopher has no need to take into consideration all the deductions from his premises he need only have good will and he can draw from the most paradoxical and suspicious premises conclusions which are fully conformable to common sense and the rules of decency and since kant's will was as good as spencer's 
they would have agreed perfectly in their deductions though they were so far apart from each other in their premises a tacit assumption schopenhauer was the first philosopher to ask the value of life and he gave a definite answer in life there is much more suffering than joy therefore life must be renounced i must add that strictly speaking he asked not only the value of life but also the value of joy and suffering and to this question he gave an equally definitive answer according to his teaching joy is always negative suffering always positive therefore by its essence joy cannot compensate for suffering in all this philosophical construction both in formulating and answering the questions there is one tacit particularly curious and interesting and unexpressed postulate schopenhauer starts from the assumption that his valuation of life joy and suffering in order to have the right to be called truth must contain something universal by virtue of which it will in the last resort coincide with the valuation of all other people whence did he derive this idea psychologically the train of schopenhauer's thought is intelligible and easily explained he was used to the scientific formulation and solution of problems and he transferred to the question which engaged him methods of investigation which by general consent usually conduct us to the truth he did not verify his premises ad hoc and usually it is impossible to verify a premises every time that a need arises for it it is not even becoming to exhibit it to speak of it it is understood if the fundamental sign of any truth is its being universal and obligatory then in the given case the true answer to the question of the value of life can only be something which will be absolutely admissible by all men to all creatures with a mind so schopenhauer would probably have answered if any one had questioned his right to formulate in such a general way the question of the value of life still schopenhauer would hardly be right this by the way is being made clear by the objections which are put forward by his opponents he is accused because his very statements of the question presupposes a subjective point of view eudemonism the question of the value of life people object is not at all decided by whether in the sum life gives more joy than pain or vice versa life may be deeply painful and devoid of joy life may in itself be one compact horror and still be valuable schopenhauer's philosophy was not discussed in his lifetime so that he could not answer his opponents but if he were still alive would he accept these objections and renounce his pessimism i am convinced that he would not at the same time i am convinced that his opponents would be no less firm and would go on repeating the question is not one of happiness or suffering we value life by a quite different and independent standard in the discussion it would perhaps become clear to the disputants 
that the premise mentioned above which both accepted as requiring no proof and understood without explanation does indeed require proofs and explanations but is provided with neither to one man the eudemonistic point of view is ultimate and decisive to another contemptible and degrading and he seeks the meaning of life in a higher ethical or ascetic purpose there are also people who love sorrow and pain and see in them the justification and the source of the depth and importance of life nor do i mention the fact that when the sum totals of life are reckoned different accounts reach different and directly contradictory results or that insoluble questions arise concerning these or other details schopenhauer for instance finds as we have seen that sufferings are positive joys negative and hence he concludes that it is not worth while to submit to the least unpleasantness for the sake of the greatest joy what answer can be made how can he be convinced of the contrary nevertheless the fact is obvious many people regard the matter in quite a different light for the sake of a single happiness they are ready to endure a great many serious hardships in a word schopenhauer's premise is quite unjustified and not only cannot be accepted as an indubitable fact but must be qualified as an indubitable error it is impossible to be certain beforehand that to the question of the value of life a single universally valid answer can be given so here we meet with an extraordinarily curious case from the point of view of the theory of knowledge it appears that by the very essence of the matter no uniform answer can be given to one of the most important questions perhaps the most important question of philosophy if you are asked what is life good or evil you are obliged to say that life is both good and evil or something independent of good and evil or a mixture of good and evil in which there is more good than evil or more evil than good and i repeat each of these answers though they logically quite exclude each other has the right to claim the title of truth for if it has not power enough to make the other answers bow down before it at all events it has the necessary strength to repel its opponent's attacks and defend its sovereign rights instead of a sole and omnipotent truth before which the weak and helpless errors tremble you have before you a whole line of perfectly independent truths excellently armed and defended instead of absolutism you have a feudal system and the vassals are so firmly ensconced in their castles that an experienced eye can see at once that they are impregnable i took for my instance schopenhauer's doctrine of the value of life but many philosophic doctrines although they issue from the premise of one sovereign truth display examples of the plurality of truths it is usually believed that one should study the history of philosophy in order to be palpably convinced that mankind has gradually mastered its delusions and is now on the high road to ultimate truth my opinion is that the history of philosophy must bring every impartial person 
who is not infected by modern prejudices to a directly opposite conclusion there can be no doubt that a whole series of questions exists like that of the value of life by which their very essence do not admit of the uniform solution to this testimony is often borne by men whose very last concern is to curtail the royal prerogative of sovereign truth Natorp confidently asserts that aristotle not only did not understand but could not understand plato der Typhiri grund ist die ewige unvergisskeit des dogmatismus sich in der geistigpunkt der christen philosophie überhaupt zu versitzen eternal incapability what words and used not of any commonplace person but of the greatest human genius known to us of aristotle had natorp been a little more inquisitive eternal incapability of that kind should have worried him at least as much as plato's philosophy on which he wrote a large book for here is evidently a great riddle different people according to the different constitution of their souls are while yet in their mother's womb destined to have different philosophies it reminds me of the famous calvinistic view of, of predetermination just as from before birth god has destined some to damnation others to salvation so to some it is given and from others withheld to know the truth and not that torp alone argues this it would be true to say all modern philosophers who are always contending with each other and suspecting each other of eternal incapability philosophers have not the same means of compelling conviction as the representatives of other positive sciences they cannot force every one to undeniable conclusions their ultima ratio their personal opinion their private conviction their last refuge is the eternal incapability of their opponents to understand them here the tragic dilemma is clear to all of two things one either renounce philosophy entirely or allow that that which natorp calls the eternal incapability is not a vice or a weakness but a great virtue and power hitherto unappreciated and misunderstood aristotle indeed was organically incapable of understanding plato just as plato could not have understood aristotle just as neither of them could understand the sceptics or the sophists just as leibniz could not understand spinoza as schopenhauer could not understand hegel and so on till our riotous modern days when no philosopher can understand anyone except himself besides philosophers do not aspire to mutual understanding and unity but usually it is with the utmost reluctance that they observe in themselves similarity to their predecessors when the similarity of schopenhauer's teaching to that of spinoza was pointed out to him he said pariant qui ante nos nostra dixirent but representatives of the other positive sciences understand each other rarely dispute and never argue by referring to the eternal incapability of their confreres 
perhaps in philosophy this chaotic state of affairs and this unique argument are part of the craft perhaps in this realm it is necessary that aristotle should not understand plato and should not accept him that the materialists should always be at war with the idealists the sceptics with the dogmatists in other words the premise with which schopenhauer began the investigation into the value of life and which as we have shown he took without verification from the representatives of positive science though perfectly applicable in its proper sphere is quite out of place in philosophy and indeed though they never speak of it philosophers value their own personal convictions much more highly than universally valid truth the impossibility of discovering one sole philosophic truth may alarm any one but the philosophers themselves who so soon as they have worked out their own convictions take not the smallest trouble to secure general recognition for them they are only busy with getting rid of their vassal dependence and acquiring sovereign rights for themselves the question whether there will be other sovereigns by their side hardly concerns them at all the history of philosophy should be so expounded that the tendency should be clearly manifest this would spare us from many prejudices and would clear the way for new and important inquiries kant who shared the opinion that truth is the same for all was convinced that metaphysics must be a science a priori and since it cannot be a science a priori must therefore cease to exist if the history of philosophy had been expounded and understood differently in his day it would never have entered his mind thus to impugn the rights of metaphysics and probably he would not have been vexed by the contradictoriness or the lack of proof in the teachings of various schools of metaphysics it cannot be otherwise neither should it be the interest of mankind is not to put an end to the variety of philosophic doctrines but to allow the perfectly natural phenomenon wide and deep development philosophers have always had an instinctive longing for this that is why they are so troublesome to the history of philosophy end of section fourteen